if we wanted every single ball python, every single leopard gecko, every single crested gecko to have the four by two by two, the, I think they're saying now for a single crested gecko, a three by three by three. I know there's been a push to put leopard geckos in a four by two by one or like a 60 gallon minimum. And even though I think expanding the minimum and saying, yes, does it need more than a 40? Ideally, yes. I mean, at what point do we have to say, yes, a 40 gallon for this ball python is not the end all be all, but that animal is not suffering. Welcome back to the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin, and thank you so much for tuning in today. Now, I know it's been a little bit of a stretch since the last episode. For those of you who are just wondering, if you didn't see my Instagram post, life is always a little bit busy for me in the fall, just kind of getting back into the swing of things. We will get into regular scheduled programming soon, probably in the next, uh, you know, as we get deeper into the fall, we'll get back to the, an episode every seven to nine days-ish right now. It might be a little bit more than that. I have a couple of trips planned, so I'm trying to squeeze the podcast into my life where it can, but hopefully into the fall, we will have have normal, my life will kind of get back into regular organization. Anyway, let's jump into today's episode. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Chaffin, who is the human behind the account on Instagram, Copperhead Reptilia. Now, Chris has quite an extensive experience working with reptiles. He has quite a collection at home himself. But this episode is really focused on the gray area between, we'll call them the old school or sort of the rack style baronish keepers to the quote unquote advancing keepers. You know, quite often the internet creates such steep polarization between worlds, it doesn't matter what we're talking about, that it leaves this middle area of grayness. And we talk about that. We talk about how there are many people who are great keepers, but feel like they can't even show their own enclosures because they feel like they don't have this zoo level habitat. And even though they're quite proud of what they have, it's as much as they can offer right now, there's this kind of issue with sometimes the advancing side going too far in a way or not too far but making it seem like there's no room in between for growth which i think is such an important part of the hobby so that is really what this discussion is about is is the growth making sure that we have room for people who are just starting and not intimidating them with two or three thousand dollar setups and everything in between these are conversations that i think might make some people uncomfortable but i think it's really important to have to make sure that we're remembering we want to perpetuate the hobby and to allow a good on-ramp for people that doesn't mean that they need to go out and spend you know two or three paychecks on things just to get their toes wet in the hobby so anyway i'm glad that chris brought this episode of this concept to me because i think it's a really important one i think you will enjoy it as well enjoy the episode awesome well chris welcome to the podcast thank you for being here thank you for having me on I'm very much looking forward to this. Uh, we've been kind of chatting through DMs, I think even since the summer. And I, I know there's a, a few topics that are kind of burning uh, that I think the more I thought about them, the more I think, you know, I think there's a lot of people that are kind of grappling with these ideas that you're grappling with. And I think this is a really important conversation to have on the podcast. So I'm ex- really excited to get uh, get into that. But but of course, you know, I'd like to lay a little bit of foundation first. So why don't we just kind of start with, you know, how you got into reptile keeping, how long you've been doing it and, and uh, you know, the basics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I would say I have that kind of typical origin story. Um, Young kid, loved dinosaurs. Dinosaurs weren't around anymore. Found Steve Irwin, Jeff Corwin. Um, I'm pretty sure most of my family can remember me watching Animal Planet all the time instead of cartoons. Um, Always loved reading reptile books. And then, you know, had the typical, you know, young kid, you get a few hermit crabs, you have them for a few years that you get a garter snake, you have it for the summer and then it's gone, that type of thing. Um, So I've been keeping reptiles now 
consecutively for 16 years, actually. Um, I, at 10, my parents got me a ball python. He was 14 at the time. Uh, he was a rescue and he actually turned 30 in April and I still have him. Um, yeah, so he is, um, kind of the old man of the collection. Um, and so it just, it all kind of went from there and then, um, kind of slowly building the collection. It's picked up a little bit over the years, just getting into new projects, getting into new animals, a few situations where, um, you know, I, I do rescue work, I do some other stuff. So, um, there have been a few times where I've picked up kind of more than one animal at a time or other things along those lines. So, and is there a, now, would you say, is there a, a direction or a focus that the group of animals you have is centered around or is it more just kind of you gravitate towards things you're interested in? I would, I would say it's a little bit of both. Um, I will fully say I am primarily a, a snake person. Um, I do have a small room that I keep, you know, some geckos, a few skinks, um, and like a monitor in, um, and I've got a few tortoises, um, never really been much for the things with legs, frankly. Um, the ones that I do keep generally are something that either that animal and I just clicked, or it's a species that I have some particular nostalgia about. Um, and that's kind of where a lot of it goes. Like, um, I will say I keep quite a few ball pythons because I am quite a fan of ball pythons. Um, despite all the flack sometimes they get, um, I do lean really heavily towards, um, carpet pythons and, um, rat snakes and, um, oh, what's the term? Um, like Indo-Australian pythons are really a big one for me as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it was even today you, on your Instagram, it looks like you did actually pick up a couple new things at Tinley last weekend. <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, Tinley was, a, a, so I'm doing what's called a closed collection at the start of the year. So actually no new animals from any of my endeavors with the exception of one breeding project will be entering the collection after new year's. So I kind of gave myself a little bit more free reign to pick up some things that I've had my eyes on, um, rounded out a few projects I really wanted to round out. So kind of came home with a little bit more than intended, but nothing that I didn't have space or the ability to handle. So and so when you, when you say closed collection as of January 1st, 2024, your the, the doors are closed in your, in your place. Is that the plan? Yeah. Yep. I, I have, you know, I live alone. I have a house all to myself and I've kind of fitted the various rooms of it to, you know, I have a room for snakes. I have a room for geckos. And then I have a room or just kind of the rest of the house are all the, um, you know, the display enclosures, the really big setups with, you know, the carpet pythons, the Japanese rat, things like that in it. Um, so, yeah, I, I want to do a closed collection because obviously, you know, biosecurity is always a thing. I'm kind of at a point where I've got some kind of rare animals that I'm working with. I've got some projects I'm really trying to focus all my energy into, and I really don't want to get distracted by anything at this point. So, yes, yeah. Yeah, it's so easy to do that to, to to get distracted, and especially when you go to a place like Tinley. And this is the experience that I had going to the CRB a couple of weeks ago. Like, you leave there wanting to get into more things, and and not even in like 
in the impulsive way I, or, you know, I just want to go, you know, buy different animals. Like at least my experience just recently coming home from a large expo is I really had this like want to get into a project, like start a, a real project mm-hmm. and get a couple of animals that you're going to be working with and breeding with. And I know I just don't have the time for it. So I kind of had to sit with it for like three weeks while you go through that emotional, like just wanting it so bad you're doing all this research and finding things and just searching for something to work with and it's starting to wane now and probably because I've gone back to work this week and I'm super busy and I'm like what the hell was I thinking like I don't even have room for this I just did a whole bunch of like getting rid of like like cleaning out my basement of old reptile stuff that I don't need anymore and it's just you know going being around all those animal people and all around animals you just want to sink your teeth into more things yeah that was um definitely the hardest part of it like i i really have a love for um anteresia so the the pygmy pythons in australia um particularly spotted and children's pythons i think they're great they stay a manageable size not a ton of people work with them especially in my area and you know i was walking around and seeing them for 40 50 on the table which is so incredibly cheap and you know they're five inches long as babies and they they grow decently fast but also they they max at two and a half three feet for males and i was finding them and i was like i i have to like i really want to produce more of these there's not a lot of people working with them and they kind of they fit really well with how i like to take care of my animals so i i did pick up a few of those and a few carpet pythons so I, I i was pretty happy with how it ended up going so yeah yeah that's awesome and then you know you were telling me off air just a couple of minutes ago that at some point during your reptile keeping career and call it uh you, you had uh, someone in your life pass away and you ended up having to acquire quite a large number of animals can, can you talk us through that because i think that i recorded an episode earlier this year about you know getting your ducks in order as far as like you as the keeper and having something in place. If, if something were to happen to you as the keeper, what is going to happen to the collection of animals? So I don't know what the situation was like for this, but obviously you did end up with a big chunk of animals. So maybe you could just kind of talk about that experience. Yeah. So I had a very good friend and mentor of mine. Um, not going to go too much into the details of kind of what happened or giving away like their names or family names, things like that. Yes, um, yeah. So I did have a friend pass away early in 2021 and uh, they did work with large pythons, primarily uh, retics and berms, but then they were also in the process of attempting to open kind of like a nature center on some property they had. Um, so there were a lot of, animals that the average keeper probably should not have. So I'm talking, you know, there were a few rattlesnakes, there were coral snakes involved, um, you know, tree boas, tegus, barons racers, um, Kribo, some tortoises, tegus, there were caimans. I mean, it was, you name it, he had it and he took care of it the way that you were supposed to. Um, he was very much, that was basically all he did every minute of every day um so when we found out he had passed we i instantly had the oh crap what what are we gonna do type thing like what do you do with that many animals you know because one of his retics i want to say the biggest female was somewhere at least 18 feet long yeah and you know feeding on whole turkeys yeah so it was it was a pretty big undertaking luckily um the toledo zoo in Ohio, um, 
was willing to take a, a fairly large portion of the collection. Um, but there were quite a few animals that were either sentimental to myself or some friends, like we knew those animals personally. And then there were just some animals that the zoo was not interested in taking that we, um, more so like one of my other friends though, um, kind of helped with securing placement for them through some various rescue groups, things like that. But um, after he passed, I ended up um, taking in two retics, two tortoises, uh, Russian tortoises, about a four and a half to five foot unicolor Kribo, um, a toke, some, I want to say at least eight or nine crested geckos. Um, and I feel like I'm forgetting someone, a hognose. And I know I'm forgetting someone, but off the top of my head, I can't remember. Yeah. So that's a pretty big group of, of animals just to suddenly come into your life. Yeah. And it was, we did luck out in the way that we were able to, some of the enclosures were left behind by the zoo. They did not want those. Or, you know, his family said, hey, we have people we know that are going to take some animals. We need some equipment to, to handle them, at least short term. So we were we were luckily able to um, to go that route and not have to immediately go and set up all these enclosures. But at the same time, it was a very I went from having like 10 or 12 animals total to having, you know, 30 to 34, I want to say in the span of six hours. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I will say going from, you know, at the time we believed that the retics were dwarf crosses because he was working with um, the super dwarves and the dwarves, but you know, we're, we're still talking. Those snakes are already six, seven foot long right now and are not slowing down. So, you know, um, it was going from being like a primarily a ball python and a carpet python person to then having two retics in my house was quite a, quite a hurdle. Yeah. First. And do you still have those retics? I do. Um, one of them actually, we, we never expected him to live this long. He was in just because of the nature of my friend passing away and then no one being able to care for the animals because unfortunately when he passed a lot of the animals were not labeled with what they were when they were last fed so we had nothing to go off of um so one of them ended up needing some semi-emergency vet care and he actually is the like healthy as a horse out of the two of them um another one of them has developed some issues over the years of his own doing um he's kind of a problematic snake that gets into everything and he has developed some neurologic issues now that he's about four or five because he was older than the other one when i got him mm -hmm. um but i do still have them so they're kind of i have a soft spot for them they're my boys so yeah 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 i mean it's amazing a like that you were able to do that for your friend and, and take on some of those animals to make sure that they did end up in good homes but that, that's just something that people need to think about when you have a large collection you know it's because even for you now your your, your vet or your your well your vet bills but also just your your um, maintenance bills double you know the the amount of time mm -hmm. you're spending with the animals doubles immediately which it that, that can be a big stressor so you, you know being part of a community, you're lucky that, or your friend is, you know, fortunate that he's surrounded by people that uh, were able to do that. And of course, you know, I'm sure, like you said, he was a mentor, so he probably had a, gr a lot of great people around him, but people mm -hmm. need to really think about that and uh, it, it can have some consequences.
Yeah, for sure. And that was actually a pretty major catalyst within my own collection of just really thinking about like, what are things that, you know, it really made me think about when animals have nowhere to go, where kind of, where do they end up going, you know? And I would say that around that time was when I really started realizing like there is a pretty decent, you know, reptile rescue and rehoming sector. Um, but that also really uh, kind of brought to me the point that it's it's super important to have those those plans in place for if you, you know, if something passed away, like I live alone, I have long commute to work, I could, I could get hit by a semi truck tomorrow. And I certainly hope I don't. But, you know, having those plans and having people that know, you know, hey, there's a file on my computer with, I always called it escape plans. You know, if something happened, you know, I have a few birds, I have my dog, I have my reptiles, I have cats, you know, it all, uh, it all needs somewhere to go, unfortunately. And that, that situation was so eye-opening. So is I know you also spent some time. I don't know if it was volunteering or working in rescues. Is that was that the catalyst to get you into those places, or were you already kind of working in those environments beforehand? So I um, basically my entire adult working life, I've worked in the animal field. Um, I worked at a local um, humane society for just shy of seven years, um, primarily with dogs, but I also did um, assist with wildlife. And whenever we would get reptiles in, um, I was one of the two reptile people that took care of everything. Um, and surprisingly, we would get quite a bit um we have quite a large expo scene in this area. So we would regularly get, you know, your basic leopard geckos, ball pythons, crested geckos, beardies, that kind of thing. But we would occasionally get in, you know, weird tortoises. We, you know, had calls for tegus. We had calls for sulcatas, iguanas, you name it. We got it in probably. Um, so I worked there for about seven years, um, left there, managed a kind of one-off mom and pop uh, pet shop that did some work with reptiles as well um, for about a year was the manager there. And now I actually work in the research sector of a university also with their animals. So not really going to go into too much there. I know that one's a controversial topic, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, but you obviously have that experience working in those fields and and like, I can imagine that being in a rescue environment, even though like you say, it's mostly cats and dogs, you still see reptiles coming through it does probably change like that that was a huge catalyst for me to push towards you know even starting this podcast and talking about these sort of topics is is going on you know in canada we call it kijiji that's our you know our classified site you know it's like craigslist in the states it's you're kind of scrolling through and you're like oh man all these animals have nowhere to go like you said where do they go and it, it kind of changes your perspective in some in some ways and uh, I mean, like like you said, you're getting calls for all these animals that you you can't possibly help them all. No, and I mean that that's actually something I have kind of dealt with in my personal life. Um, you know, I think I always joke about if people have ever heard the term like chicken math. They always say if you get one chicken, it goes from one or two, and then you go straight to twenty. And I feel like reptiles are very similar, and a lot of exotics are the same way. Like if you become known as that person that has birds or you have reptiles and you keep them alive and people see that yours seem to do well with you. You seem to get pinged in your inbox about, Hey, so-and-so has a bearded dragon. So-and-so has a ball python. And 
So then it, I've probably turned down at least eight to 10 normal ball pythons that people have offered me in the last, you know, year, year and a half. And the thing is, I've, I go to my bedroom every day and I look at the 30 year old ball python that I've shared a bedroom with since I was 14, you know, and it's that whole, like, I think the oldest reproductively active ball python is in a zoo. I want to say somewhere in the UK. And I want to say she was 62 and she laid a parthenogenic clutch of eggs that actually did go the distance. And so if we're talking about animals that can live into their sixties and we're, you know, you see so many of them out there and it just kind of brings the thought of like how many of them are still out there, but also where are they all going? And you hear this both with retics, but also ball pythons because by and large ball pythons outlive retics as far as I'm concerned in most settings. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even if you don't say 60 and you say 40, I mean, it's still a long time. That, that part of our trade really doesn't make sense. I mean, it's like dogs live 12 to 15 years. It's it's very, it's impossible to buy a 12-year-old child a ball python and have them understand that they could potentially still have it when they're 50. You know, it's just, our minds don't work that way. We, we like even, even, you know, even adult minds don't work that way. You, you never plan for 40 years down the road. It's just not how, that's not how time works. You can't possibly do that. No, and that was something that, working with the, um, the rescue group that I do work with, um, that I, I really value about them because they are, um, you know, it's run by, uh, two of my good friends that I, I met adopting a Japanese rat snake from them. Um, and we just, we hit it off. They were former shelter workers as well. Um, and they have the whole thing of, you know, these animals live so much longer than a cat or a dog. You can get that ball python at 15 or 20 and say, I'm going to give this animal everything it needs. But then when you realize that animal lives 40 years, it's a rare person that can plan 40 years in advance and say, I can give this animal everything it needs for the next four decades. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even the animals I have, I have snakes. I mean, they could live into their thirties or more. And Mm -hmm. how would I ever no, <laughs> if in 30 years I'll have a job or the economy will be able to, you know, there's, there's so many variables. It, um, it's tough. Exactly. And that's why, you know, I really do want to close out my collection and, you know, I'm one of those people I, I do very much align with trying to give for sure more than the bare minimum. I'm big into giving, you know, enrichment and substrate things to climb on all that good stuff. And you reach a point where you realize like, okay, I'm, I'm tapped for space. And if I want to do any room for growth or do any personal projects, this is, this is kind of where it sits right now, because I mean, I'm, I'm 26. I could have my sulcata tortoise the rest of my life. And I certainly hope that I certainly hope Darwin outlives me, but at the same time, that's a big, that's a big responsibility for the next God knows how many decades. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and like you said, not, and also there will be, uh, you know, certainly a trade-off at the end where, where that animal is going to have to end up with somebody else, you know, that, that most likely he'll live longer than you. And then there, you kind of have to have a plan after that. I, I, so I think this is a good segue to jump into some of the topics that, that you really wanted to talk about. And I think that they're, they're <laughs> interesting. So, you know, even, even this, this topic of, uh, how husbandry has evolved over the years. Right. And, and mm-hmm. you know, w- one of the, 
one of the, the the points that you'd made to me in the DMs is that you know as husbandry evolves, we start getting these two worlds, like the old keepers and the new keepers, and then they almost become more and more divided, and those lines become more and more, or the grooves between those two become more and more deep and wide, and it's obviously not mm-hmm. helpful. So maybe I'll let you run with with kind of that that line. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, I would say the the real peak of when I got into reptile husbandry was probably circa 2006, 2007. You know, old reptiles magazine was still in the mail. Um, Blue calcy sand was a thing we were still recommending basking rocks to people. I mean, just compared to what we know today, it was, it's nightmare fuel for me now. I mean, thinking about little 10 year old me begging my parents for a sandfish skink and begging to put it on blue calcy sand because it was cool. I never did that, but you know, and I, I think that's where we, where there is a little bit of a dichotomy now because we have all these people that are coming in to this hobby at a time when in some ways, the knowledge, the research is leaps and bounds above where I ever thought it was. Like, I mean, you just look at the mitochondrial DNA breakdowns that they do to break up subspecies and figure out who comes from who and the, you know, studying blood chemistry to see what effects UVB or diet or stress has on our animals. That is all so fascinating. And frankly, we have it at the click of a button. I mean, I remember back as a 10 year old kid chomping at the bit to get reptiles magazine because, you know, these were the days of the king snake forums and you know people would at the time people were telling me oh you have a, a ball python keep it on aspen in a 40 breeder with a heat lamp over the top and never missed it because they're from the desert and i shudder to think that that was the advice i was given at 10 because i would never keep a ball python like that now but um where i'm going is we have this whole group of people that have this this education and this vast knowledge at their fingertips, but we also have the group of people that grew up and we shouldn't, you know, say it's a good thing, but we have this entire group of people that worked hard, had to make those hard accidents, lost animals so that we got to the point where we're at. And there are a lot of those people that are very stuck in their ways, but what they've been doing has been working for 20, 30, 40 years. And we have people that even though the knowledge is advanced, they've been doing it for two or three years and they found out all their info through a Google search, not actually, you know, the people that accidentally fried their green tree pythons or the people that, you know, burnt a Savannah monitor, you know, things like that, you know? So I think there's a really big gap between people like the old group and the new group, because especially when I go to expos and I talk to some of the older people, you can tell that they, even though you will talk about the newer methods that you're using and that you plan to use on their animals, they will still say to you, when you get this home, put it in a tub. Don't put it in that giant tank yet. Don't do A, B, C, D, because it's just, it's not something they've worked with. It's not something they've done. It wasn't the done thing at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think a great point that you make is we're dealing with a, a group of keepers who have, um, like the the you know the old school keepers who have the experience, like you said. So even though you could be a newer person keeping, but you're sort of 
I don't, I don't want to put this in a way that's going to insult anyone, but you're in, you're in some way, you're, I guess it's not an insult, insult to say you're kind of standing on the shoulders of giants in some ways, you know, because you, you, you get to jump into the hobby while, like you said, all this amazing tech, there's tons, the UV products, the enclosures, everything is like booming right now. And that's where you get to start mm-hmm. where, and then there's the, a little bit of arrogance when you look back on people who've been doing it for 30 years and, and yeah, they have the experience of doing things wrong in a way that actually killed their animals and hurt their animals. And back then there wasn't the technology, you know, they were using black lights and things. So you could see why they, they, once they found something that works, they've kind of stuck with it. And so, I mean, ideally we have those people also improve their animals care, but at the same time, you you don't want the new people to be arrogantly um, forgetting about those people who kind of laid the foundation for us. Exactly. And that is such a massive thing that I see where I feel like a lot of the newer generation and like I will say I and I will probably get some flack for this somewhere along the line. I will still keep young ball pythons in my snake room in glass aquaria because at the time when I was brought into the hobby that was what you did. And they're part of the issue with all the tech out there. And before anyone says anything, I use radiant heat panels. I, you know, I use overhead lighting. I've used LEDs. I really want to get my hands on some VivTech products and try them out and see how I like them. You know, I've, I've gone through the stages of the PVCs using overhead lighting under tank. I've tried the different methods, but kind of where I was going with that is back when I was brought into it, you we didn't have PVCs. You had a rack or you had a tank. That was, that was about it. And you did have those people that went and built wood or melamine enclosures. Usually they were the people dealing with boas or retics and larger things. Um, and now at the same time, I, especially in the days when I was working in the pet store, I would see a lot of younger keepers come in and I think thermostats are great. I love my herb stats. I love my spiders, all that stuff. But at the same time, there is something to be said for learning how to gauge your humidity, your temperature, yourself by using, you know, obviously we have Govies are $10 each, chuck a Govie in a tank because unfortunately tech doesn't always work and tech fails. And I have seen tons of times where people say, oh, my mist king stopped working and I didn't realize because I don't hand mist, you know, the humidity dropped or hey, the radiant heat panel, like I've had that happen. I had a radiant heater go out on my blood python and I didn't notice for four days because sometimes you are busy and you don't check that that digital thermostat every day. But if you have an overhead light on, you notice when it goes out. And so I think at, at times the, almost the, I always joke around, call it the like plug and play method that so many places say, you know, oh, you get this PVC, you get this light, you screw it here, you turn turn it on and then you replace the bulb when it burns out or you get this heat panel, you set it to X and you let it go. I mean, honestly, where's the fun in that? I mean, I love seeing my animals thrive in a good environment, but at the same time, you know, there's something to be said for being able to manually take care of your animal and meet those parameters yourself without the tech having to do it. And I think that's where a lot of the older keepers are kind of at where 
we we didn't learn with just being able to put stuff into place and chunk an enclosure together on an Amazon shopping cart. We had to really figure stuff out. I, and I think like, that's lost nowadays. Uh, yeah, I, I I completely get what you mean. It's like there's the is it like the art of keeping in a way, you know, it's, it's the interaction that you have with the husbandry that becomes that, that you need to be flexible and you need to be able to uh, analyze a situation. And you know, it's something as goofy as putting your hand under a bulb and being able to tell if it's the right temperature, you know, like without yep. using the thermometer, without using the, the anything to measure temperature, it's like, does that feel right? And, and you know, those types of things are, you know, there are, there's so many ways that you can interact with as a keeper that exactly like you're saying where it's it's you the human that's doing the work and and that is where the fun in the hobby comes and that's what the old school keepers are built off of right that that is everything that they did entirely and i mean if you ever come over to my house i mean and i'm sure this one's going to get me flack i have a about a four and a half foot brazilian rainbow boa that I actually have successfully kept for years in an open top aquarium because he's got a peat moss and sphagnum and cypress jungle mix mixture. I go in there and you can see me in the gecko room, the snake room, any given night with a 10 gallon pump sprayer, checking enclosures, spraying, making sure that I'm getting into the moist hides. And, you know, if someone's in shed, they get a little bit of extra, you know, and that's something that I just, I feel like a lot of people don't do anymore and that's something that back in in the day was kind of what we had to do we had to go around and triage every enclosure every day make sure the parameters were met and it's very fortunate that we don't have to do that nowadays but at the same time what are we losing by having that plug and play just plug it into the wall put it on a timer and let it go it makes it so easy i can confirm but you lose something with that and you lose in my opinion you lose that one-on-one time of getting to spray your animal and seeing them come out and drink the water off being, you know, off the side of the enclosure, things like that, that you miss out on. Yeah. And, and I think to sort of connect those two worlds together, those old school keepers and the new school keepers, like, I don't, I don't know if those are appropriate titles, it doesn't really matter. You know, there, there needs to be a gratitude for people who are coming into the hobby now who have the, you know, you're, like we said, we're, we're coming in with all this technology, all this knowledge that has been worked on over the last like 30, 40 years of people keeping reptile, reptiles. And, and and then, you know, I think that gratitude would help kind of create a good faith conversation with those old school keepers and maybe say, hey, look, maybe there is some science now that says just, show, you know, putting in a, a snake in a dark tub is, is not the best, you know, welfare-wise. So there, there are some things we could do to expand that, and maybe that conversation could actually be had. The old school keepers want nothing to do with the new school keepers right now be- because of that, I think, lack of gratitude. I just want to take a short break from today's episode to thank each and every one of you for tuning in today. If you would like to show more support for the podcast, you can do that by checking out the show's sponsor, Custom Reptile Habitats. There is an affiliate link in both the YouTube description and the show notes. If you do make a purchase through that link, a commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you. 
The other way you can show support to the podcast is through the Patreon account. For as little as 75 cents per episode, you will automatically be added to the Discord server so you can communicate and chat with other like-minded keepers. If you do bump yourself up to the $5 a month tier, you'll have early access to the episodes and the opportunity to submit questions to upcoming guests. Again, I am so grateful for each and every one of you. This podcast is a lot of work and costs me a lot of money each month to run, and any support coming from your end is greatly appreciated. Back to the episode. A hundred percent. I mean, I'm I'm sure you've kind of, you know, heard, you know, some of the old school people, but, you know, you're never going to see me go to the Tinley show and go to the Zirkle's table and tell them how to keep a Mandarin rat snake. But if I buy a Mandarin rat snake from them, I'm going to ask them, how are you keeping this so that we're, we're going to meet in the middle? Because one of the things I saw so commonly, and I still see it all the time, is you go onto Facebook groups. Someone says, I got my first corn snake. The guide online says it needs a four by two by two. And they take this neonatal tiny baby corn snake and put it in not even a four by two by two. A 20 gal is just massive for a newborn corn snake under three or four months old. They are so tiny. And you'll see people say, oh, I can't find him. Oh, he got out. Oh, he's not eating. Well, one thing that I always go back to when I believe it was Dr. Lofman, who I know you've recently had on. um, I'm a big fan of a lot of what he says and does, because I think he is for anyone wanting to advance their husbandry, but who is also capable of understanding that there are scenarios and there are situations in which a tub or a, you know, less enriched environment may be good for a certain animal or a certain species. That is the man you need to listen to. But when he talks about baby snakes are, they're part of the leaf litter. Sometimes they don't want to be out in the open. If you're a four inch long baby corn snake out in the open, you're food for a blue jay. I mean, and so I think there's this whole, there's this kind of lack of communication with what is okay and also appropriate for the life stage, the individual animal. And there's so much that's being lost with, and I know you and I talked about it um, in our DMs, just with the almost sheer weaponization that we we see with people that are so anti-rack that anything less than basically a zoo grade massive enclosure is basically abuse or neglect to them. And that's also something that I've heard across multiple podcast breeders being asked if the baby was rack raised or if it was raised in an enclosure because people don't want to support rack breeders. But at the same time, if you're having a snake that has 20, 30, 40 babies, are you going to be able to fit 20, 30, 40 enclosures all with UV and substrate and lighting and all the bells and whistles? And frankly, the answer is no. Yeah. And I think that, I think you're so right. People need to understand that I know a lot of people who are very high quality keepers who breed snakes and put the babies in racks because it's the, it, mm-hmm. because like you said, the size is a big thing. Can you monitor eating? Can you, you know, monitor their, 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 uh, their feces? There's so many different reasons. Now, can we take some of those baby racks and as the baby gets a, a week or two old or, you know, as they get older by weeks, we can start adding some enrichment into those racks and make sure that they're eating and do all these types of things. And you can add some leaf litter into, into their, into the tubs, for example. But yeah, the, the idea that you could take a baby corn snake 
make something that's like the size of a shoelace and put it into its adult enclosure. You could do that, but you'll never find it. It's the same thing that we see in, in, in the spider world, right? You, um, mm-hmm. Quite often spider people will get, uh, people who don't keep spiders will look at sling enclosures and say, well, those are so small. Like you shouldn't keep a spider in such a small, like little vial or something. But the thing is, is the slings are so tiny that you can't tell if it's been eating if it's not in something small or else the animal will die. And that's the first thing you got to make sure that the animal is going to get nutrition and eat. And then we can start building on top of, you know, making a proper enclosure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am always a big advocate and I will be the first to say it unless someone tells me otherwise. It is it is a pretty rare, like I said, I mostly do snakes. So it's pretty rare for a snake to come into this house and not be put in some kind of a, if it's large enough that it has to go into a tank or a viv, it'll go in that with, you know, usually if it's an adult, I don't worry so much, but if it's a baby, it's going usually in a tub or a smaller tank on paper towel or newspaper for a week. I'm going to make sure it's pooping and it's got to hide. It's got some, you know, some kind of enrichment items to climb or pass through and that's got a water dish. And then, after I've seen a few poops, I've seen it eat a time or two, we're going to put substrate in there. And then you get all those items back, then you get substrate. Then as you move up through the, you know, through the, the ranks here and you, you grow and all that, you, everyone kind of goes through that whole, they get the baby rack for the first couple months. You know, I'm going to make sure they're going to be okay. They're eating. Everything's good. Then you go to a 10 or a 20 gal, or you go to one of the smaller PVCs I have, you know, and it's this whole, it's stepping stones, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. The beautiful thing about many species is you have time. You know, you have a ton mm-hmm. of time. You might have 30 or 40 years with this animal. We don't have to jump into the zoo level exhibit right away. And and uh, I think this is a good segue into, into the kind of the meat and potatoes of, I think, what you had originally contacted me about, which was this... The, the, the sort of the husbandry extremes that we start to see. And this is kind of in the same, you know, domain of what we're talking about right now. But, you know, this, I, I think you you phrased it really well in our DMs, which is sort of like a, a gatekeeping environment that's starting to happen from, um, you know, just not leaving enough middle ground for people to enjoy the animal they have and then grow into something more extravagant, we'll say, with their keeping style. Um, instead, it's like, if you're not doing this right away, then if you, if you, if you didn't go out and spend the two grand on, on the setup, then you're no good. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That is honestly one of the, I think, one of the biggest issues that we, or one of the bigger issues we have right now, apart from all the the other drama that's been floating around this year in the community. But it's something that I see increasingly commonly, you know, I'm not, I don't really want to name drop, but like there are different care guides that you will go through and you can look at, let's say, are you familiar with Brettles pythons? Um, I mean, I'm familiar with the species. I'm not, not the care necessarily. Okay. Basically very similar to a carpet python. They do get a little bigger, but as long as you're not overfeeding them, they're moderately growing species. Um, a few years back, you had Lucas Lee on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah he works with them. Yeah. Yep. I actually have one of the brettles from one of the clutches that he, um, was talking about on that podcast. And okay, so for cool. example, that snake at two, two and a half years old is about two and a half, maybe three feet long, but he's only about as big around as a nickel at best. Mm-hmm. So he's still a very small snake. Um, 
And there was a care guide that I saw that was saying that the minimum acceptable enclosure size for a bread lie was eight by four by four. Eight feet. Eight feet by four feet by four feet. And if you know anything about bread lie, there, I can tell you, unless Batar is hunting, he spends 90% of his time curled up in a lump. And that's not to say that he won't do more at some point but also this is a slow growing animal and the the cost factor alone of an eight by four by four enclosure for a a carpet python that in nature lives in the kimberley which is a very very extreme region of australia it goes from extreme heat to extreme cold it is a very arid region they tend to spend a lot of their time in rock crevices and in caves you know, this is this is not an, an eastern indigo. This is not a snake that is out actively hunting prey. It's hoping a mouse comes into its burrow, frankly. Right. And the idea of an eight by four by four being the smallest you can go. Now, I'm not saying put it in a 20 gallon, but at what point, you know, I believe it was with um, you were talking, I believe. It may have been Phil, but you guys were talking about one of the episodes you did a few weeks back about the uh, the person that gave their leopard gecko an entire room. Mm-hmm. And it kind of reaches the point of like, when do we when do we call it? Because even though I fully I fully support and let me make this clear early on, I support if you have a couple snakes or if you have the means to give every animal in your collection overhead lighting, UVB, a massive enclosure, substrate, the whole nine. I fully support you doing that. I fully think that if you are allowing your collections care to stagnate, you are doing a massive disservice. But I also think we need to start as a community weighing at what point are we letting our personal ethics and morality weigh into what we are telling other people is how they should take care of their animals and Mm -hmm. setting these extreme standards of, you know, the same care guide website says that the minimum cost factor associated with setting up an Aki monitor cage for one Aki is $1,600. And I just want to let that sink in from it because we want this hobby to grow, right? We all love these animals. I can tell you, as a reptile owner, that 30-year-old normal ball python that if I had to get rid of him, someone would give me $10 for him. Okay, he is worth next to nothing. That snake is worth so much to me and has been here for me through so much of my life. But at the same time, where I was kind of, oh yeah, but where I was going with that is I got that snake at 10 Okay, I I still have the 40 breeder tank that that snake was given to me in it. And, you know, that's that tank now holds a small king snake that is living his best life, having all the room to climb and bask and do all his stuff. That snake now lives in a four by two PVC, you know, the ball python. But at the same time, who which in our community that wants to welcome in the new children that want their first ball python, their first corn snake and. You know, even an Aki or a Breadlie are a totally doable family pet. They're manageable. They are good-tempered. Ackies are small. Breadlie have a good temperament. Regardless of what species we're talking about, what person in this community 
is going to look at a 10 year old at the expo and say, oh, you don't have $600 for the PVC and the UVB and the Arcadia lighting. You don't get that ball python. Mm -hmm. Who's going to be that person? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the point we're getting to where we're starting to set these standards so high. And even though I think the growth we see within this hobby is phenomenal, I could not have imagined the growth I have seen just since COVID as a long-term reptile keeper, the growth in this hobby is phenomenal. And I hope it continues. When I was at Tinley, I picked up the Arcadia guides to lighting and reptile nutrition and all that, because I want to read all that. I want to see what they have to say on everything. But at the same time, we need to allow people to be able to enter this hobby from a starter level and work their way up. Like you said, the we you're going to have this animal for 40 years. That's a lot of time to advance your care. And it doesn't have to be from the get go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it's a, it's a sentiment that I've shared before as well, where I've talked about, I think, you know, and this could be taken the wrong way, the, the wrong way, but I'm going to just phrase it the way I, I want to phrase it is uh, I'm less concerned about how you care for your animal currently than I am about your actual mindset towards keeping animals. And if your mindset is progression and openness, then I'm pretty confident that over the years, as you become, you know, get, have more money, have more time, whatever it is, have more space, you're going to continue to improve that animal's care. And that, that I think, starting with something basic and moving up is totally fine but at the same time you know you could see the other side where people go well now we know these these some of these items are um you know very good for the welfare of the animal so they should be included but i you know i think about something like a uh, an enclosure size I, I think we can start promoting more, ha- like, like an Aki would be a perfect example. You could easily have a, a, a space in your basement or whatever like that's kind of roped off or, or fenced off for the animal to come out and have activity without having to put it in a, in a giant enclosure that takes up your entire bedroom or something. You know, and like you said, like, you know, um, with the, the young lady that has her leopard gecko in, in an entire room, that's Ayana, um, I would never stop someone from wanting to do that. Like if that's how you want to go into your hobby and, and tinker with it, that's super cool. Who knows what we'll be able to learn from someone doing that. But it, we certainly don't want someone to look at that and go, oh, that's what that animal needs for me to keep it, that I, I, I could never get into it. Yeah, and this is actually something that I've I wanted to talk about in the DMs a little bit, but I kind of figured it would come up on its own and it kind of has. So, and one thing I see so much is this kind of cookie cutter approach to everything. Um, And I feel like it's becoming kind of difficult. And I've, I've heard the sentiment from friends of mine that do a lot more breeding than I do because I, I don't really breed much, frankly, I'm not going to lie. It's not really my thing. Like I I said earlier, I have a few projects, but I'm one of those people I would do like one or two clutches a year at most because I want to put the, if I'm breeding, it's something that I want to further the species in the best way I can. So, you know, I'm not going to be mass producing or anything like that, but I do know people who breed, you know, slightly more obscure species like the Candoya, the Solomon Island ground boas. And that is a very shy species that spends a lot of time in leaf litter. They're very long lived, but they're very secretive. They stress very easy. They do not like changes in environment. And, you know, there's this whole thing that I feel like a lot of people, especially nowadays, feel a snake is a snake is a snake. 
And I have heard countless times where they will send off a baby to someone and they put it in a 20 gallon tank and that snake has never lived outside a tub and then it goes off food. Or, you know, everyone knows the story of the baby ball python. I've had it before. And, um, you know, where you get that baby snake, you put it in a bigger environment than what it's used to. And it just, it's culture shock. Um, and if I can make a little offshoot for a minute, because I think, you know, there's a lot of controversy and there's a lot of back and forth within the community about ball pythons right now. And so I kind of want to put this into perspective. I purchased a ball python during COVID and she had been raised in Iraq her entire life. And when I got her, she actually for nine and a half months did not feed after going into a 30 gallon aquarium. And this was a about three and a half foot sub adult. And I knew she was coming from Iraq and going into a cage. And I purposely put her in a smaller type enclosure than I normally would for a snake of her size because I, I figured she was going to have an adjustment and the shock that animal basically went into. And though I know there's a lot of things about, well, when they're kept in deprived environments, we do see some degeneration in the brain. And that is absolutely something I think we need to take in mind, but we need to take in mind also the natural history of the species at hand. Um, I know you're up in Canada. Are you familiar with rubber boas at all? Um, I'm, Again, I, I know, obviously, I know the species, but I, I don't yeah. uh, keep them or anything. I don't know anyone who keeps them here, but I see people post the wild ones in California all the time. Okay, so they're, they're a prime example for the point I want to make. Um, so I keep one. They are, by and large, one of the longest lived snakes on the planet. They can live 40 to 70 years. There was There is actually a study where one was fitted with a transmitter and tracked. They found that snake under the same pile of rocks in the same field for over 40 years straight. Now there, yeah, now there is, and I'll tell you, I have a two-year-old rubber boa and they are incredibly slow growing. He is less than eight inches long at two years old. Um, like he eats a pinky every two weeks. I mean, that's how tiny we're talking and how long one pinky goes for him. But I keep him in a, I don't know, like a five gallon equivalent gasket box with no heat or anything, because number one, they don't want a lot of heat. But number two, every time I go in that enclosure, he is under the same hide. I have never seen him move from that hide. And I've had him seven, eight, nine months now. And that tracks with what a lot of people tell me. And I think a lot of people are so stuck up in the morality and the ethos of every animal needs space. Every animal needs this when they're, we know there are species that don't want that space. We know a blood python is not going to be out and roaming the same way a false water cobra or a Kribo will. And I think that one of the best things any keeper can do is when you first get into a species, offer, like once it's beyond that acclimation period, offer them different things, but people would be, I think, shocked to find out as I have over the years, that there are actually species that want less than what you think they want. And it's a very hard pill to swallow. I, uh, going back earlier on when we were talking about my friend who passed, um, I recently, I held onto his hognose snake for a while. Um, 
And I had a friend who said, I'm, I'm looking for a hog nose. And she had set up, she has worked in zoos and wildlife facilities. She set up this beautiful 55 gal spray foam carved painted background. Literally any hog nose would be ecstatic to go live in this enclosure. And she's a listener to this podcast. So Jamie, you did good. But at the same time, she put him in this lovely enclosure with UV, with basking light. This snake lost his marbles. Absolutely lost his marbles. I'm, I think six, seven months he went without eating for her. And she finally messaged me and said, I don't know what to do. And I just told her, I said, I'll be 100% honest with you. He was living in Iraq when I got him. I had him in a 15 gal, put him in the smallest enclosure you can, give him some stuff to hide under, and I guarantee he'll eat. Two days later, he ate. She put him in a 10 gal. And I think that there is so much vehemency in the hobby when people see what they would consider by their ethics and their morality to be not enough, but they fail to take into account. And this is something I see a lot with the advanced side of the hobby. We are, and as someone who likes to feel they align with that side of the hobby, we are so stuck on claiming the intelligence and the sentience and everything of every reptile out there. But are we also acknowledging that there are personal differences between animals where I have, I can tell you, I have a decent group of ball pythons and I've kept many ball pythons for many years. There is absolutely, I have ball pythons that would explore a jungle gym. If I let them, I have ball pythons that I have never seen outside their hide. And I think that is something that within this community, we do not, we do not accept and we do not talk about enough that there is individual variation between our own animal, my jungle carpet to your jungle carpet, my boas to your boas could all have different personalities. They could have different learned experiences, different genetic backgrounds that may tell them, you know, there could have been an ancestor that lived in a very arid area and spent most of its time in rock crags, that snake is going to want to then probably spend more time shoveled away. But if that snake is used to being out and about and its ancestors were actively hunting in whatever locale they were from, that snake may want to be out more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there, there's, there's nuance and that's how, you know, I think, I think one of the things with just the internet and the ability for us to communicate as we do online it seemed to it seemed to make everything like all or nothing in a way where it's like mm-hmm. it it there's just it's black and white like you said we, we, you know we, you'd mentioned earlier this gray area you know this is what we kind of wanted mm-hmm. to talk about today and I think it, the internet removes gray area to the, because you could never post a picture of an of an enclosure in a gray area because you would just get lit up from both sides almost in, in in a kind of an ironic way but I think you're so right I mean I think one of the things you had said to me before too is you know there's more to the the five freedoms of animal welfare than just space. And it doesn't mean we're talking about promoting, giving less space. It just means, you know, if you do, if you can't provide an eight foot enclosure for an animal, it doesn't mean you can't have that animal. You can give that animal more space by giving a jungle gym, like you said, or in some cases, some animals actually aren't going to use that space and you can enrich their lives in other ways. Rather than putting your time and money into putting a huge enclosure that they're not going to use, maybe there's target training you can do or whatever it is, you know, some other ways you can enrich that animal's life that it's going to actually appreciate rather than, you know, have a giant space over its head that it could, it's never interested in using. 
Exactly. And that is something I learned very, very early on. Um, so before I kept reptiles, I know I mentioned earlier, I do have some birds. And that is something that coming from the bird community you see very, very frequently is out of cage time. Um, you rotate what's in the enclosure, you rotate what's in the diet. That is just a normal thing. And um, one thing that really you know, has made me think is that combined with my experiences in the fields I have worked in. So like when you work in an animal shelter, you know, that's not an ideal environment by any means, but you still have to provide enrichment. You want to fulfill those natural desires. And so there are things like, I will never beyond a baby. I will never keep a carpet python in a rack. They need to climb. I mean, it is, it is a rare carpet python that will not take the opportunity if given. But that being said, I absolutely have a carpet python that would rather be in her hide than on a branch, you know, and between that and, you know, you can go into the enclosure, you give them leaf litter, you can rotate what prey they're getting. I think that alone is a massive thing for a lot of animals. Just throwing a chick into the diet every now and again does wonders that I never imagined. And I started feeding more chicks and quail. I saw so even to my ball pythons that had never eaten anything but rats and mice. They love that kind of thing. And I've seen them go just absolutely bonkers for it. That doing scent enrichment, um, you know, rotating out. And this is going to be controversial because, you know, maybe it's not the most, you know, what's the word I would say? like biosecure thing, but, you know, I have king snakes. Every so often I'll take a shed from a corn snake or I'll take a little clump of bedding that doesn't have any poop or urates on it, put it in that king snake tank. And you are going to see that snake start prowling for about the next six hours. And it's just fulfilling some kind of a natural behavior. And yes, of course, like you said, we're not advocating to give our animals less, but we're accepting that at times, I hate to say it, and this is something we've said at the rescue that I work with before. Sometimes the minimum is enough. And it it took me a while to really buy into that when I started there. But then you realize there are 40, at the last time I looked, there were over 44,000 ball pythons on Morph Market. Okay. Let's not even talk about the ones that are bonking around in the ether out there. If we wanted every single ball python, every single leopard gecko, every single crested gecko to have the four by two by two, the I think they're saying now for a single crested gecko, a three by three by three. I know there's been a push to put leopard geckos in a four by two by one or like a 60 gallon minimum. And even though I think expanding the minimum and saying, yes, does it need more than a 40? Ideally, yes. But if certain parameters are met, if certain enrichment, dietary, environmental qualifications are met, can a leopard gecko thrive in a 20-gallon lawn? Absolutely. Can a ball python live in a 40-gallon? Yes. Would I like to see it in more? Yes. But also, I think we're, we're very quickly going to reach a point in this hobby where there are 
So many. And I can tell you from Tinley, I did not see a lot of ball pythons sold at Tinley. Oh, yeah. That was the same experience I saw, at least from my perspective, at the Canadian Reptile Breeder Expo. It just looked like a lot of a lot of the same animals that were there at the beginning were still there. Yep, absolutely. And I, I went to some of the top tables and I went by them multiple times. And there were times I never even saw a single empty display. And again, we're talking animals with a 30, 40, 50, 60 year lifespan. If we start, I feel like we are at a point where we are either A, going to have to start euthanizing reptiles because we just don't have the ethical and moral standards to keep them in things that are of adequate size via current standards, or just no one's going to take them. I mean, it's it's a very slippery slope at this point. I mean, at what point do we have to say, yes, a 40 gallon for this ball python is not the end all be all, but that animal is not suffering. And I can tell you, I have subadult ball pythons in 40 gallon enclosures right now. And as someone who has been in this for 16 years, and these are animals with basking lights, these are animals that do have, I don't offer UV to all my snakes all the time, but I do have some UV strips that I rotate through different enclosures and you get them for a couple of days, then it goes to the next bank, then it goes here or there. Um, it works because frankly, I don't think they need it all the time. You know, it's a personal thing. UV is a whole other conversation for another day. Um, but he has substrate. He has fake plants. He has things to climb on. He has choices of heights. He has cork bark. He has a water dish that is big enough for him to soak in. And there are still people out there that would say that is incorrect and that is inhumane. And this is an animal that before I got him had a history of not eating and he has never missed a meal with me. So, I mean, at what point do we have to say that there is, there is a minimum for a reason and it's a hard pill to swallow that sometimes that minimum, as long as other things are met, is what matters most. I have had multiple people say, this is my four by two by two for my bearded dragon. And I wish I could send you the picture. I had someone once tell me that I was neglecting one of my rescue beardies because at the time he was living in a 40 gallon. And when I said, okay, I would like to see a picture of your setup. You know, if you want to tell me I need to do things better, I want to see how you keep your animal. And when I tell you, they sent me a wooden box with no substrate with a dollhouse sofa in the middle, a bin of dirt and a chunk of cocoa or um, cork in the middle. That, that was all the beard he had. And I have a, I had him in a 40 gal at the time with about two to three inches of dirt sand mix. And what I do is every enclosure I have is tiered. There can be like a hide at one end. Usually I'll put some branches going up, kind of crisscross them, put some fake plants, have multiple hides with my beardies. I always do kind of like a, I get like paving bricks and set them up, make a den, make sure it's nice and stable so it won't collapse. And that way they have a where somewhere they can go to, but I use that height to build layers through the enclosure that they can go to. And I'm sorry, I would night or 100% of the time, I would rather see a bearded dragon go home to someone from one of our rescue events, living in a 40 gallon that is decked to the nines than a four by two by two with a dollhouse sofa, two other bits of furniture, and they can't get eight inches off the ground. There is and that's something that we see all the time. I would rather see someone maximize the space of a smaller enclosure than just throw an animal into a bigger space with nothing and say, he's good. Yeah. 
it's well, and that's the thing too, because you can have the false sense that you're doing a great job with this larger space and not realize that you're actually neglecting the animal. And I would, I would much rather, like you said, have somebody, like let, let's say you had a ball python in a smaller enclosure and the animal, if you had success with that animal and the animal is healthy and thriving for you, you're more likely to make an expansion down the road. But if that animal is not eating and you're constantly struggling with it, it's going on food strikes, like how, how likely are you to engage with the animal in a way that you know, you're excited about, you're probably going to become more and more demoralized working with that particular animal and then potentially never try to improve it in any way. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I really, um, and I know I keep bringing it back here, but I feel like it's, unfortunately it's a hot button and it's something that it's a drum that I think we're going to keep beating for a while. Um, I know you were on the uh, Trap Talk podcast a while back. I was actually listening to that episode you did um, yesterday or today um, because I just found that podcast. And they were talking about like ball pythons, for example. I can can frankly tell you my best feeders have been the ones that have started in tubs. And I, I never, when I got into reptiles, I hated tubs very much like um, if you ever listen to Dr. Loafman say he was so anti-tub, I was so anti-rack, um, like vehemently. And then I used one and I realized that they they aren't the end-all be-all, but you can still get very consistent results. And that's something working in, you know, a laboratory setting with animals. You realize that sometimes having that consistency between the setups and taking away some of the variation is actually something that sets a lot of animals up for success. And that's why you'll see the industrial breeding setups. And I'm not saying they're not effective. They're not the best thing out there, but they have a place for a reason. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely the efficiency side to it. And, and as we had said earlier, I mean, if, especially if you're the, the, baby snakes it's very tough to, mm-hmm. to raise them in, a, in an overly enriched environment because you do need to get them started you do need to make sure they're healthy and and um oh, there was something i was going to say about that what was it uh, it'll come back to me but oh, oh yeah no so this this the, the the premise of this kind of the part of the conversation is essentially what you're talking about is not creating a barrier of entry so steep mm-hmm that we can't allow, let's say, a child to get into keeping reptiles. Like, I guess the question is, is do we think that where, you know, this, let's, let's say the pinnacle of husbandry, do we think that a child should start with that? And, and if so, basically what you're saying is a child can't get into the hobby or, or a new person even to get into the hobby because it's just too much. So that, that's kind of the statement you're making if you say, like, this is the absolute minimum of keeping, if, you know, this, a zoo enclosure, essentially. Yeah, I mean... It's something that I, I really think, I mean, I, because I seem to recall you've had, is it your crested gecko that you've had for like nine or 10 years? Uh, oh yeah. I've had him since 07. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so you got him the same year. I got my ball python then. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and I feel like you're in your like early thirties, correct? So yeah, you're not yeah. too much older than I am. I'm 31. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we're relatively close. So, I mean, at kind of going back to where I said, though, at, I mean, if 
you had told me and my family in 2007 when I got offered my ball python, oh, he's not being kept in the appropriate size setup. To do that, you're going to have to invest in a four by two by two minimum, the Arcadia lighting, the deep heat projector, or the, you know, whatever lighting you want to use. You have to, and all that stuff. And, you know, if you're talking seven, eight, nine hundred $900 for a snake, there are people that won't invest that in their dog. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's right, but at the same time, we are at a point in the hobby where we we want people to join the hobby. We want there to be more reptile keepers. There is unprecedented growth in this hobby, which is a wonderful thing. The times are changing. But we also need to be gentle and understanding that those of us that have been around and have adapted to the times and have taken on the changes to the tech and have adopted the new tech that's out there, we also need to understand that people are going to come in with a ball python and a 10 gal or a 20 gal. Mm-hmm. And as long as they're meeting certain care parameters, that's okay. They have a long time to do better by that animal. Yeah. And you know what, you know, sometimes I, I, I agree. Like it, we don't want to scare people away from getting into the hobby. Like you said, if, if I, I remember when I bought my crested gecko, um, Jeez, what did we pay? It might have been like $150 for the gecko and the exoterra enclosure and everything. Like it wasn't it wasn't crazy. But if it was like, "Hey mom, can I borrow $800 to do this?" she would have been like, "No, we're not doing that." And then I never would have got into it. And so we we, we don't want to scare people off. And plus, if if it is if you do force people to do everything, then you're essentially asking them to fail. I mean, how can you expect someone to balance the, the all, all these different things, you know, live plants, cleanup crew, all this stuff into a bioactive setup for their first animal? Like that is kind of extreme. And I think, I think one of, now that I think about it, one of the analogies that I use that I'm probably falsely using is I would always say, well, look at the marine fish keepers because they'll go invest two grand in a setup and they'll understand chemicals and balance and everything. But so that's what I would quite often say is, you know, that should be the expectation with keeping reptiles. But those people keeping marine fish tanks don't start there. They start with the $10 tank from Walmart with five neon tetras, and then they, they build on top of it. So the, the, the initial investment isn't $2,000 for them. The initial investment is $50 for a, a pump and a tank and a couple of fish. And then the bug bites them, and they're, then the snowball happens, and they're happy to invest the time and the money. But, but you can expect somebody to understand how to balance salt water and buy the equipment from out of the gates. No, and that, and frankly, the like the boom in bioactive stuff is um, is something that I I really like it, but I also really hate it because it is such a double edged sword. So, for background, I like to think I know quite a bit about bioactivity. Um, for a while, my um, the partner I had for a while um, worked for Josh's Frogs because they are actually semi-local to where I live. So um, got a lot of Josh's frogs type um, products in the house, got to test out a lot. And I can, I can tell you bioactive is not the end all be all. And I think a lot of people push it as, Oh, it's, it's less work. It's less this, the poop gets eaten, the shed skin gets eaten, this, that, and the other thing. I found bioactive was much harder to maintain than just a naturalistic and just spot cleaning once or twice a week. And 
you, you know, have to you have to really want to interact with an ecosystem like that, and that's what I always say. You have to be wanting to balance things and clean things and, and watch the cleanup crew. And it's an amazing project, and if you want to go down that road, but to think that the five isopods in the bottom of the enclosure increases the welfare of your crested gecko is just wrong. Exactly, and I mean, I've at this point I have let all my bioactive enclosures just. I've either entirely gutted them or taken them out because it's frankly, it's too many moving parts. You can never fully sanitize anything in a bioactive. And if, you know, God forbid, I, I will full disclosure a few years back, I received a snake that I purchased off morph market that was riddled with mites. And despite my best effort, mites, mites move. And I had to gut my entire collection for a while. And it was, a gnarly experience that also changed how I keep. And I, I never want to go through that again, but you know, kind of like going back to what you were saying, there's the whole, no one starts out at the $2,000 tank. And I think, especially when we're getting these kids that are getting their first, you know, their first corn snake, their bearded dragon, their ball Python, you know, and I know people hate the term starter pets, and I don't think I don't like the term starter pet as in you have it until you dislike it and then you get something better and you throw away the first one. I don't mean it in that sense, but it's a starter pet because I think you would agree a corn snake or a ball python is much easier to take care of than an olive python or a lychee or a toke. And even though. And I think that is also something we need to take into account is there are certain species that absolutely you can never keep in a subpar condition. You can never keep a retic in a 40 gal unless it's a tiny baby. You can never keep a sailfin dragon in a six by two by two. That, I mean, that a sailfin is gonna need a whole room with a water feature, same with like a caiman lizard. But at the same time, there are absolutely animals like a leopard gecko that frankly, I cannot tell you how many leopard geckos I have seen in their teens, twenties living in like a 20 to 30 gal equivalent their entire life. And that gecko is living a totally fine, unbothered existence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, like, yeah, there are some species that absolutely give you a window of time to interact and work with them and, and, you know, mm -hmm. to learn. And, and like you said, that's, the starter species doesn't mean yeah like it's not a throwaway thing, but it gives you that opportunity to 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 engage with the hobby for the first time, and it it can't be this insane endeavor. And I think I think people there's probably a lot of people that even listen to this podcast who have enclosures and setups that they would even want to share on social media, but are probably afraid to because they think mm -hmm. that they're going to, they're, they're going to be, you know, yelled at for not having like the perfect lighting setup or the perfect size when really, who knows, maybe they've improved over the last two or three years of their care. And this is just where they are right now. And they're actually excited about where they are, but then someone's going to come tell them that their animals in this is horrible shape when, when really their animals eating, it's pooping, it's drinking water, water and who knows what they have plans in the future for as far as you know the enrichment and, and the, the evolution of their care but they don't want to share it because it's they're kind of terrified that too and i mean and if i can bring up kind of like personal not my personal but just interpersonal ethics and things for a moment i think we as a community really like to pick and choose what we consider you know, the wild, because you always hear people say like, I want my reptile 
to live just like it would in Australia, Africa, whatever it may be. But I think that there are there are factors that no matter what, we're never going to be able to get that. And we at the end of the day, we still have a snake in a box because when maybe ethics isn't the great greatest term, but when you think about it, a snake in the wild, like have you ever gone field herping? Oh, it's very, very a couple of times, but it's very rare here because there's really one snake to find. <laughs> I was going to say it's very similar here, but you know, when you go field herping, when you're finding snakes, yes, there are going to be snakes like coach whips, blue racers, you know, you're going to see them out and about. They're going to be moving. They're in the sun. But then as soon as they see you, they're gone. But if you're looking for things like milk snakes, hognose, rubber boas, you know, a lot of those things, you're going to be flipping tin. You're going to be turning over logs and rocks and not only that but in those environments these are animals that are dealing with extreme cold extreme heat the elements predators parasites they don't always eat every second friday and i think people in cap in a captive setting and i know again bringing him up Loafman, Dr. Loafman has talked about this, like a modicum of stress occasionally in your animals is a good thing. Mm-hmm. It does help with burning off fat. And I'm not saying open, open your ball Python rack and start poking with a stick. That's not what I'm saying here. But at the same time, when we give them these giant enclosures with every single thing they could ever want, there's a part of me that says, you know, are they really living their best life? Because if you look at, you know, I think it was, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank on his first name. Is it Kevin Sheehan? But he was on Colubrid and Colubroid Radio and he was talking about Texas rats. And he says, you know, why I use, you know, the system I do for breeding them is if you find these animals in the wild, they're not living in this lush, verdant paradise. They're living under tin. They're on the side of someone's shed in a wood pile. The, and I've seen it before where people are like, oh, this is my bearded dragon enclosure. And it's borderline a tropical bioactive with pothos and spider plant. I'm like, that is not where that lives. If you have, if you follow any of the people in Australia who do wildlife removal and you see wild bearded dragons, they look half dead. (laughs) <laughs> like I thought, I thought yeah. my bearded dragon was on the lean end of things and he is morbidly obese compared to what they look like naturally. Yeah. yeah. So thin. I think, yes. So I think there is also this huge disconnect between, I think we're almost anthropomorphizing and we are, we want to provide that perfect life because we think providing that perfect environment is what they want when in reality what reptile is living in a perfect environment. And I think that's part of the dichotomy between the rack and the enriched keeper. Our reptiles are so hardy that they can. And I mean, the slither files is a perfect way to show reptiles will put up with immense abuse and neglect. And that is in some ways has been why the really old outdated sterile ways of keeping of just meeting their four basic minimums has allowed them to thrive for so long but at the same time i think we're starting to almost overthink it with how much people are trying to say every animal needs at all times 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's it's it's almost like a misguided attempt to to make their animals welfare better like i think what you're saying with the bearded dragon example is a perfect one because i've seen that before as well where they people will get confused by adding by creating like a tropical bioactive because they see other people doing that for other species they put a bearded dragon in there and they think that the welfare is better but really they've kind of missed the mark on the husbandry there so it it, like i said there's there's so much nuance and there's it's really about uh, a continuing making the conversation continue to flow both directions but b i think such an important point you're making is we don't want to make this hobby inaccessible and we Absolutely. want more people in it, and we want people to to be excited about what they're doing, and uh, allow them to grow within the hobby. Because if it, you you it, w- it would be like just starting school in grade twelve, like you know taking t- mm-hmm. taking a taking a young child and making them do the grade twelve work. He just can't do that. We need that gradual slope up. It's just the only way everything works. And I think that is actually a, a such a crucial thing that that i guess is happening now because we have the pretty strong you know advancing community we'll call it and uh, i think members of that are forgetting that that can't be the starting point and uh we, we need to have a allow people to grow into that yeah and i think that i mean frankly and i'm i'm absolutely sure there are people in the advancing crowd because i am part of advancing herp husbandry and a lot i'm part of reptile lighting i'm I'm in a lot of those advanced groups because like i said i do align very strongly with a lot of what goes on there and i'm sure there are people that have said this is my first snake it is a false water cobra it lives in a seven by three by three with live pampas grass and all the all the stuff that it could ever want but at the same time there are a lot of us out there that I think forget the times when we were the 10 year old with the gecko. And I think that, that, that is something that a lot of the people that have been around. And even if you tout bioactive and you tout the most advanced levels of keeping, you need to remember that if we want to continue growing this hobby, we really need to remember that inside all of us is that 10-year-old that had the leopard gecko on the reptile carpet and fed it mealworms every day until it was morbidly obese. We need to remember that we all got to where we are by learning, by making mistakes, and by improving, and that as long as your growth does not stagnate, and I can even say in the last few years, I've seen quite a few older you know, breeders and keepers that I know have even said, you know, I'm downsizing my collection. I want to move these animals from, you know, a 30 quart tub into a a 70 quart and only have 10 of them versus 20. And I think those are the kind of people we should laud. I mean, he's, he's controversial, but Tom Crutchfield has come a super long way and the stuff he pushes is phenomenal. And I, I laud the fact that he does want to cut down his collection and he believes in just going full bore into, you know, what is the most ethical for the animal in front of you? Yeah, absolutely. And and some of the people who are kind of in the old school uh, really don't like Tom because of that, because he has changed, right? You know, he's a, he's mm-hmm. a man that's well into, I, I don't know how old he is. I, I mean, he's probably, he's, I don't know. I, I won't guess cause I don't want to insult anybody, but he's been doing <laughs> reptiles for 
way longer than I've been alive, much, much longer. And, uh, and he has the ability to go, okay, no, I think this is, you know, these are intelligent creatures. They do deserve these things. And, uh, I think people like that are, are really important, but he's also not going to tell you that you need to have a, a room sized enclosure for, a uh, for a, a crested gecko, because, even mm-hmm. though, you know, it could, it could work. It's just, we want to make sure that it's, we're still having a, a, a hobby because at the end of the day, that's what this is. We are keeping animals for fun and we want the welfare of the animal to improve. But I think you summarize it perfectly by saying we do forget that initial 10 year old self. Like I, you know, I'd already mentioned the money side, but if I had gone to my mom and said, Hey, this gecko is going to need six feet of room, it, it would have been a no non sequitur. We'd like, no, you're not getting that. Yeah. And something I would actually, and this might be a more, slightly controversial opinion of mine, but I also want people to think about one thing. So I know a lot of people, you know, have mixed feelings about working with imported animals, things like that, you know, but, and I forget who was talking about it, but when they were talking about some kind of an Indo-Australian python and working with the imports compared to as we breed them longer in captivity, And there are, I would say by and large, most of the reptiles that are in the trade are not what you could consider domesticated, right? But there are a lot of species and a lot of our like mainstay staple, you know, leopard gecko, crested gecko, bearded dragon, ball python are going to be the main four I'm going to hit on for a minute. I would hazard that those species in particular are domesticated if not very close to it like every crested gecko in existence stems from less than 10 founder individuals and i can tell you i saw thousands at tinley so at what point do we also need to accept because when you breed animals for captivity generally what we see is that as the generations go beyond that first f1 pairing we generally tend to see the temperaments of those animals improve as time goes by Now, at what point do we also have to accept that to some extent, as we get further from the wild caught and the F1 animals, are we artificially unknowingly selecting for animals that have lower cortisol responses that do better in captivity? And especially with some of those species that are kind of bred on a large scale, have we artificially selected them? Through whatever domestication air quotes process is going on? Have we selected for individuals that do better in smaller settings? Because I think it's easy to say that there are plenty of species that you can give them what we would consider very small and they will do perfectly fine. Now, at what point do we say there might be like a eugenics proponent to like, I've, I've heard multiple times across multiple sources, you know, the wild caught retics that existed back in the day were wild but then you got three generations in and they rapidly became tamer and now i can tell you my retics have never tried to bite me now at what point have we done that with ball pythons with crested geckos where the ones that used to be all over because i can tell you my 30 year old 1993 hatch ball python is the most active one i have the least active one i have is one that was born last year and is four different morphs that I took in as a rescue from a friend. I mean, at what point have we accidentally selected or unknowingly selected for animals that actually thrive in a deprived environment as well? 
Well, I mean, I think that's for sure. I mean, because this is something that I picked up from Ellie Hills, who was just on uh, Ellie and Liam were just on Project Herpeticulture. It was released earlier today as we're recording this. And and she had made a point that I'd never thought of. And it's essentially the point that you're making that even if you're not intending to do this, just by virtue of breeding animals in captivity, the ones that breed are the ones that were uh, able to breed in captivity. You know, you're going to have some, some uh, in a group of animals, you're going to have some individuals that just have too much stress being in captivity to breed. They're just not going to procreate. And just by the ones that are successfully breeding, you're just, you because they've had offspring, those are the ones that could handle captivity to the extent that they could actually breed. And I I never thought about it that way. I think that was, and, and so you are auto automatically selecting something there and you know as you work Mm -hmm. your way down the line uh yeah i mean think about dogs and cats you know they're they they don't require as much complexity as uh as a wolf pack you know like a a dog can be okay in your house without a pack of wolves around it but a a wolf outside by itself outside of a pack is you know that's not going to survive so they're or, or you know thrive anyway so for sure we could change what the animal requires and again it's not to say that they need to be shoved into a small tub it's just to say that we maybe don't have to go recreate the one acre space of of range that they have in the wild oh absolutely and you know if some and again if someone wants to do that like uh i think was it custom reptile habitats did the thing where they they just put up the post a couple hours ago about they linked a breeder tub to this giant well-planted enclosure. And I think that's great. I mean, give that animal free choice. And I mean, obviously that animal is one that is preferring to be in that kind of environment, you know? And I think that's just something that I've started hearing a lot in like dog communities. I'm in, as they say, address the animal in front of you. And I think that is something that the reptile community really needs to start doing is we need to, really just get away from care guides number one we need to you need to get away from care guides yes they are great for learning your base care parameters but when they get so outlandish with what they want you to do and especially and no hate because i know everyone has sponsors and stuff but when when i go to a care guide and they they say things and there is one that has seen said before i only recommend arcadia lighting which yes, Arcadia is great. If you live like where I do rural, you can't get Arcadia except online. And frankly, I've had tons of bulbs come broken. So I would just rather go to the store and buy the Zoomed bulb that I've used for eight years that does the exact same thing. Yeah, the, the UPS guys are always smashing things. <laughs> yeah, and so I just, I think when you get to a point where we're getting where we're at, where everything is so cookie cutter and you have to do this, you have to do that. But everyone is taking out that fact of what is the animal in front of you wanting? Like I hate red bulbs. I have an albino snake where the only time that snake will bask is if I give him a red or a purple bulb and it kills me. Yeah. But it makes sense. Yes. He is very, he's an albino ball python and he will only bask under a red light. And it is the worst thing because I hate red light. I do, but that is the only way I can get him to ever come out and bask. And I, I can't ever post a picture of him basking under that red light because I would be skinned for it. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And even though we are well aware of the fact that their eyes are incredibly sensitive and the the white light or just bright light is going to be very bothersome to that animal. And the fact that he should be able to thermal regulate with a, with heat is 
obviously incredibly important, people would still mm-hmm. look at that and go, hey, that's that's not right. Yes, and I think we very much need to, as a community, we need to stop attacking people for doing a method that works differently because, for example, I keep the ambient in this house 74 degrees. So nothing in this house really ever gets cold enough, even without a heat lamp for me to worry. You know what I mean? But the parameters of my house in Michigan are going to be different from yours in Canada, from, you know, my friends in California or whatever, you know, it's all going to be different. And people take away that variation of my animal in my enclosure, in my home. And we need to stop attacking people for doing things different because I'm sure nine out of 10, there is a very good reason if their animals are in good condition, their enclosures are good. There's a reason they're doing something differently. And at 10 out of 10, if you, if people would just stop attacking everyone for doing something different or against the current recommendation, they might find out that there's a very valid reason for what is going on. And who knows, maybe you can learn from that as well. And, and yeah, I think it, it, it allows the keeper to engage with the animal on a deeper level. And it is never to say, stop evolving. Like you said, it's, it's, that's always going to be there, but to be able to interact with the animal and learn from how you're caring for it and, and you know, what, what you're implementing into that enclosure and what effect that it has on that animal, rather than, like you said, just putting the cookie cutter thing in and going, put the, putting the animal in and go, this is what the care guide said. So let's just let the animal exist. It's like, no, you have to move the basking zone or, or change this or add, add leaf litter or change the size of, of the, the, the water dish. Maybe that animal actually likes the soak. Maybe it doesn't like the soak and you can actually give more floor space and have a smaller dish. Like there's, there's so many different things and every animal is so different, even within the species, as you mentioned. So I think, I think it's so right. And I, I think, we're getting away from that community sense by creating these real hard lines rather than just being like, Hey, how do you keep? And you know, this is what I do. This is what I found really effective. Yeah. I find that my boas do bask under UV. Oh, okay. Maybe I should implement that as well. Vice versa, whatever it is. And mm-hmm. if, if we create these little tribes all over the place that do things this way only, it kind of destroys things. It really does. And you know, over the last few months, I think just, I mean, obviously no one is immune to it. There's always drama and there's always finger pointing and there's always all that stuff in this community, but really just, I can't say it enough, just instead of the, well, you know, that's not a big enough enclosure. Like I've said to people on Instagrams, like I once said to um, Bob Vu, who's one of the really big ball python breeders, I once said something about like, just asking about why do why do you keep this amount of animals in tubs why do you do it this way and he actually wrote me back like a very thoughtful well-written response about why he does a b c d e f g and why he sees a benefit to his animals and you know that's okay if more people did that and just would reach out and say hey i saw you do this like if someone asks me hey I saw you posted a picture of a ball python under a red light. Did you know red lights are bad? And I would say, hey, he's an albino and I've given him white light and it is too strong for him, but he does prefer to bask under a red light. I'm sure everyone can understand that. Absolutely. But there's just so much. We've become so quick to finger point and because everyone is a keyboard warrior and with the growth we've seen in the hobby since COVID, 
we have a lot of people that have come in at this time where they were able to get that tech, the knowledge is there, and they were able to pick up on what people have built over the last, like you said, going back real early, standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, they're picking up on things that for someone like me with 16 years of keeping ball pythons, I've amassed over the years, Mm -hmm. but they can pick up half that info off Google now. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's that whole, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. I have Google and my one snake is alive. So I know best. Right. And we really need to get away from that in the community. Yeah. And uh, exactly. And just continue to promote dialogue and, and growth. I think that's, that that is the key. And I, I, and I think there'll be a lot of people listening to this that will be kind of like, yeah, you know, I, I, I've always been, I've never felt confident in my own ability to keep because of that sort of side of the hobby and they don't want to share or interact with people. Like I, I know there's people out there that, that want to be involved in the community in a deeper sense, but maybe they can't afford the next size of the enclosure or, but, but they do a great job with all these other aspects and they, they probably, they probably yearn to be part of the community in a deeper way, but actually have a fear of, 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 uh, being yelled at essentially for, for not doing things perfectly. And that's a real shame. So I, I think that's, uh, that's such an important message that you're giving. So I'm, I'm really happy that you, you came to me and you, you, you brought this topic. Um, is there anything else about this kind of topic that we didn't cover that, that you wanted to mention before we wrap up? Honestly, no. I mean, I, I truly think we've hit on all the points and I just think my biggest thing to reiterate to people is before you say anything negative to another keeper, ask them, you know, it doesn't even have to be publicly like me on Instagram. I, I had some Doomerals boas that were born with birth defects and have since passed, but I had someone message me and say privately and say, Hey, I didn't want to blow up your post, but like, are they seeing a vet? I saw their eyes look weird. And I was like, yes, they were born. They have a birth condition. It's addressed, you know, da, da, da. And they were like, okay, cool. I just wanted to check. I think so much could be said for just having civil, polite interactions within this hobby and just talking like we used to in the old days at herp clubs and at expos before social media was a thing. Just ask a question, be polite. Don't attack people. And likewise, don't come out on the defensive. Just have your facts for why you do what you do. And nine out of 10 people are very understanding of different methods. As long as you have a a valid reason with some kind of a basis behind why you're doing it and why you see benefit to what you are doing for that animal. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is very well said. Well, Chris, uh, thank you so much for this conversation, and, and thanks for bringing this idea up to the to the podcast as well, because I think it, it, it's a very good one. Can you let everybody know where they can find you on Instagram? The the handle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my Instagram handle is copperhead.reptilia. So, um, lots of brown snakes on there because that's kind of my thing. But. Um, yeah, if anyone ever wants to talk, I am always down to talk reptiles. Shoot me a message, leave a comment, do whatever. I'm always on there. So Awesome. Well, Chris, this is an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me, Dylan. It was a I had a ton of fun. So thank you so much. All right, that is the end of that episode. Chris, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. And again, thank you for bringing the topic to the to the 
table as well and you reached out to me with this is a topic that was kind of bugging you as far as you know nobody's talking about it and I agree that it's something that does need to be discussed listeners I'd love to know what you think do you think that is it is important that we highlight the gray area to make sure that there's some comfort for people that they can grow within this hobby without feeling so intimidated that they can't even start where do you sit on this or do you think because the science has evolved to a point where we know exactly what it, I shouldn't say exactly at this point we know what an animal really does need to have a high state of welfare do you think that is no if ands or buts that's where a keeper needs to start i'd be very curious or do you think that we do need to have a soft on-ramp for people to to bring them into the hobby and let them get bit by the bug and then allow them to grow so i, I I'm, I'm curious you let me know in the youtube comments or the spotify comments which does allow spotify or spotify does allow comments now so you can do that there as well Thank you so much for listening. If you want to share this episode, that is greatly appreciated. You can do that on any social media platform, obviously. And I really do try to reshare things when they do get shared. If you're looking for more information on this podcast or any other episode on the network, head to animalsathomenetwork.com. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, you can do that at patreon.com slash animalsathome. There you'll have early access to episodes. You'll be able to communicate with the other listeners. We have a really nice little community on Discord that things going off all the time and it's really fun to be part of that conversation and also you can head over to custom reptile habitats using the affiliate link in either the youtube description or the show notes if you use that affiliate link a commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you and of course that helps me support the show as well and that is it for this episode guys i will see you in the next one